Well, let's, let's ask God's blessing. Dear Lord, we're thankful for the morning and thankful for the time with our brothers and sisters. Christ, we'd ask that you would increase the good that that is in our lives individually, that our times together would be blessed. Give us insight looking at your word this morning in your son's name. Amen. I was at, at Big House. One of the things that has happened over the centuries is a Sunday afternoon dinner church report because we have people from different churches at the house. And you get to find out what's being preached in the pulpits of the land at various places. And a few weeks ago, uh, uh, Ruby Hodges was telling me that uh, uh, Toby Sumter was at Trinity Reformed, was going through the various minor prophets, kind of an outline. And it had been so long since I had even looked at Haggai that I couldn't remember how long it was. And I made some uninformed remark about, well, how did he get through Haggai so fast? He said, it's only two chapters. It's embarrassing, but uh, so, Obviously, embarrassment has a way of registering the mind. And I can remember one of the standard passages I go to in Haggai, which we will go to today, standard that I go to. I haven't gone to it in a long, long time. So I was thinking about the subject, not my own embarrassment, the subject of what Haggai is prophesying regarding. And... Uh, and as, you know, when you have a chance to meditate over a few days on something, it sort of steps to the front of the line when you're asked to grab a passage on which to preach. So I looked at the whole book of Haggai. Haggai is two chapters long. It's four prophecies long over the course of about four months. You know, it's, it's not a long thing. Two of the prophecies are kind of very general about improvement of the circumstance for the Jews, not something that we can do a whole lot with, but two of them have principles that are that I wanted to look at this morning. Haggai is what's called post-exile. Uh, or if you want to sound pro, post-exilic. You say, well, what's the... You know, he, he's at the same time as Zechariah, the prophet. Um... Before the Ezra-Nehemiah situation. But he's mentioned in Ezra. But a date for these circumstances is hard to come up with. Because in antiquity, kings had the same names as each other. Okay, just a basic problem. So, if you deal, this is during the Persian period. And the Persians, there were three Dariuses, three Artaxerxes two Xerxes, two Cambyses, two Cyruses, and they never put a number after their name. We do that as historians to make life easier for us, but they and their documents did not. So the Darius here in verse 1, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, that's pretty accurate. A little bit of history thrown at you, but you don't know which Darius. You can pretty much write off Darius the third. He's not... He's down there at the time of Alexander, and he gets, you know, beat pretty quickly. <coughs> but Darius first, Darius second. If it's, it's a hundred year difference. 
as to when Haggai is doing these prophecies. Because all of his prophecies are in the second year of Darius. And as you compare notes with Ezra and Zechariah and a few other things, there are some hints that it's Darius I. Most people think it is, because that's Darius I, the Great. And, uh, uh, but there's some things in Ezra that wouldn't work out if it were. So, not to waste time in the sermon, and I'm not going to, if you want to look after church at my, the textbook I wrote on biblical antiquity, page 56, for an early date, for a late date. You can look at all the scripture references at your leisure. I brought down a copy so you could fill in the blanks if you're going to be frustrated all sermon long. Well, I just can't decide, Evan. Darius the first, Darius the second. I had heard of neither of these two guys before this morning. And now it just compels me to know. So we got two prophecies here. One in chapter 1, one in chapter 2. I trimmed out the one at the end of the book I trimmed out and a one in between these I trimmed out. I don't mean to edit the scriptures in some sort of way that you feel that is a violation, but you know, we got a meal to eat at 12.30. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, It is time for you yourselves to dwell, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider how you have fared. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider how you have fared. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may appear in my glory, says the Lord. Now, as you know, this is in ancient Israel, there is an actual temple. A temple is a house of the God. It's not a church. It's not a place of gathering. It's the house of the God. And because God's presence dwelt on the mercy seat in the, on the uh, Ark of the Covenant, God's presence dwelt in the house in Jerusalem before it was the house in Jerusalem. Uh, uh, the tabernacle, the movable, the movable tent of meeting. Um, but after Solomon built the temple, it was in Jerusalem permanently until Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it in 587. This is after that. The Jews have been out of the land of Israel for a number of years, 60 years, 70 years, uh, since the destruction of the temple, they've come back with a small population and they're looking at no city, they're looking at no temple. And uh, that's the story of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Haggai, and Zechariah. What do we do? What kind of political problems do we run into? Who's going to object? Will the Persians like what we do? But God has an opinion that it says, you guys have had enough time to build your own houses, didn't you? 
you have time to dwell in your own paneled existence and not the house of the Lord. Because God would like to have his house built and he likes to tell them that perhaps things aren't working out for you because you're trying to make them work out for you. Now I want you to know that we're a small church. I don't know if you knew that. And all small churches have pastors who can see glory on the horizon. They can see the growth of their ministry. Finally write the book that sells as much as someone else. They see church growth. They see a campus, a church campus. Perhaps a college named after the key pastor. Perhaps. And so passages like this in Haggai are just asking for it. They're just, they're just saying, you know, all you guys are spending money on your mortgages, and what about the church? But that's not how the application works. The application here is not physical religion for physical religion. That's the problem with the church is they still think it's a physical religion. They think the kingdom of God, this building has something to do with the kingdom of God. It does not. Nothing to do with Christianity. It's, it's where we meet. For the Old Testament, it really was a missing temple. There wasn't a temple in Jerusalem anymore. And they built it by the sixth year of Darius, whichever Darius. And it was called Ezra's temple and... Uh, uh, it was kind of like the, well, let's be frank. Well, matter of fact, the rest of one of the prophecies in Haggai, uh, he says, you know, those of you who remember the Temple of Solomon, remember that? And you're looking at this one, and it looks like it's like a trailer park temple. And he promises them great things later on. But Ezra's temple really was. It was stripped down and simple and direct. It wasn't the glory that was Solomon's temple, which was largely a Phoenician architecture, and there wasn't the glory of Herod's temple, which was largely, it was Corinthian, uh, uh, classical. This was just sort of the slum temple. But they still had to build it, because their, their religion, the law, the covenant, was something that had to be done in that building, in that place, with that holy of holies, with those sacrifices. Your application here as a Christian is not to find a way to get a committee together and a donor base so that we can have, you know, like a real nice altarpiece up here, carved wood with an icon in the middle. It's not so we can raise money to make this better because, of course, the church is more important than your private life. People would use it that way. But the Lord has the same, and I say the Lord, Jesus Christ, has the same idea in the Sermon on the Mount. I have a few things that I trimmed out of a, of a statement on worry that he has in Matthew 6 here on the left-hand side. You'll recognize the phrases. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures. 
And then in 21, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon. Is not life more than food? All of that saying, you know, the same thing as Haggai was saying. Hey, you've been concentrating on your own home, concentrating on your own 401k, concentrating on providing what you want for your life. And the warning is, and which of you, by being anxious, could add one cubit to his span of life? The Gentiles seek all these things, and your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So it's not a question about whether a responsible mind thinks of all those needs. Really, it's a question of which comes first. That's what Haggai asked. Hold it, don't you guys have houses? Nice paneled walls? I don't have diddly? What came first? Your house? My house? Verse 33 of Matthew 6, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things shall be yours as well. Now Jesus Christ isn't saying, hey, let's all be monks. Let's all give everything up. The concern is, how do I get to the responsible life, taking into consideration all things, that deals with the things, the physical things in my life, all that I have to deal with, without going after it first? Well, you cannot serve God and mammon, one. You've got to pick one or the other. One of them is going to come first for you. Neither side is saying, ignore the other. The person who has got the responsibility jones going on for him, who says, you know, I really, I, I, you know, you know it's, it's enough that I'm here Sunday morning. Don't push it. I got stuff to do, money to make, plans to keep. But I'm going to, I'll be at church and uh, I'll, be, I'll be a support. But don't push me, Wilson. Another person who's all pious, you know, seeking first the kingdom. They're not thinking that their responsibilities are not their responsibilities. It's a question of which comes first, which works. In this world, where the world takes your practical needs first, how is it going for Israel? Consider how you have fared. It's like throwing money into a pocket with a hole in it. It's a great image. People have tried by their pursuit of the things of this world first to add to their span of life. What do you think every addition, every addition um, in this uh, advertising world, you will see a new scientific uh, um, thing. This will, whatever ch number of percentage points of your chances of not getting this. And I wonder if anybody's ever done a sum total of all the chance improvements that if you, you didn't drink any caffeine or didn't have this or didn't do that, you should live forever. Really. I have no chance of dying. I've done everything right. Because what? Because since people are worried first about themselves, first about how they're going to get there, what they're going to do to achieve it, 
they would much rather give themselves as close to immortality as they can because they're not even thinking much of Jesus Christ and the immortality in him. Who, by worry, can add one cubit to his span of life? Can't do it. It's not working. All the people that say, let's go pursue the things of my life first, because I'm a God wants me to be responsible instead of the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm explicitly not saying, first off, the church building or the physical church ministry. We're not talking about that. This is the new covenant. We're not part of the old covenant. We're not part of a written code. We're not part of physical places. The kingdom of God is within you. If I am to seek the kingdom first and his righteousness, and all these things will be yours as well. The Lord knows that you need them. He knows better than you do how much you need them. But he wants to be first. You say, what do you mean? I'm like, uh, i got to give eight hours a day to the ministry? Just like I give eight hours a day to my job until it's first. No, you know the difference. Do you love your boss more than you love your wife? You spend more time with your boss, right? Do you have to get home and say, honey, okay, hit the clock. We've got to get eight hours in of time together because I want you to be more important than my boss. No, that's not how it's added up. I don't say my children are less important to me because I spent more time at work than I spent with my kids. There are some people where that does, is a reflection. They really do care more about their job than their kids. Some do care more about their job than their spouse. You know the difference. It isn't an addition of time. It isn't even looking at how much money was made for the kingdom or versus uh, your, your job and responsibilities. It's a matter of where your heart is. You know what's first. You know what you love. You're being asked to build his temple first. Now, in the Old Covenant, it was actually a temple. Bricks were laid. People had to be contractors, had to be employed. Corinthians 3. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid which is Jesus Christ. When Zerubbabel, here in the latter part of the first portion, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as their Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared before the Lord. They went ahead and they started to build the house of the Lord in the second year of Darius, whichever Darius. But in us, the new covenant, no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each, man work, each man's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work which any man has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, 
but only as through fire. Key verse, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? The same way God's spirit dwelt in the temple in Jerusalem under the old covenant, sitting on the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you. In the new covenant, you're reading through Haggai, you should go, you know, the Lord Jesus, he wanted me to seek first the kingdom. Haggai would suggest, build the temple first. What's the temple? You. His righteousness. His kingdom. It's not a matter of this church building. It's not a matter of the church ministries. It's not a matter of any of the physicality that are attached to you. How quickly you're going to make this physical so you can keep your physical control of your life. You are serving the Spirit of God. You are serving His righteousness. You are living out what God has done in grace in you. That should be first. Every one of you Individually, even the short people back there in the lemons row, girls, even you. Now, one of them looks up. Hi there. They're coloring, I bet. All of us have got to put Jesus Christ and his kingdom and you as his temple first on the list to build in your life. And if you're wondering why, some of the rest of your life might not be working. All of the efforts you put into it, all the wisdom you bore down and did and worked and hard and invested and whatever you did, and still, no matter what, things are going wrong, maybe because you put you first. Not that you put you at all, but you put you first. You didn't believe God when he said, I will add, I know you have these need of these things. I will be there. All these things shall be yours as well. But the warning here in Corinthians is, verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and that temple you are. You don't want anyone to be turning your heart away from the temple observance and construction that you're under into some trashy, you know, first uh, covenant sort of physicality. You've got to be involved with the physical thing of that physical kingdom. You have a responsibility to present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. The Lord wants, want, I didn't quote this portion out of Matthew about the moth and the rust devouring that tells us that everything you do, you know, I, I don't know, I want to remind you of something. Every effort you put into the things that, that consider how you have fared, is it working out? No matter how much you pile up money-wise, investment-wise, guess what? You're just as dead at the end. Okay? There's that thing, moth, rust, dead. Shovel, pile more stuff up, more dead. No matter what. But if and you say, well, Evan, aren't you dead? 
even if you follow Christ, but in Him is life. In Him is my eternal life. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now the second prophecy that we're looking at today on the 24th day of the ninth month, see that was the sixth month, three months later, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest to decide this question. If anyone carries holy flesh of the skirt of his garment and touches with his skirt bread or pottage or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered, no. You don't have to deal with this, okay? One, you guys, you're not wearing skirts, but I've had an apron on because I've been enslaved in my kitchen a few times. You know, you say, apron, big house, it says up here, and, and say the wife is shoveling today's roast out of the oven. She has a big meat fork, and she shovels it onto my apron I'm holding out, and it's because it's for the church, it's holy. Right? It's a holy sacrifice for your fleshly appetites. I'm carrying this roast dripping through my apron, carrying it, and of course, bumping into things. It's holy meat. Now the apron's holy, because it has the holy meat juice running through it. And anything I bumped into has holiness writ large upon it, you know, in the coffee table and in the car, and everything has become holy with the priest say, Evan's bad theology. No, it does not. It does not become holy because something holy bumped into it. This is the passage I love out of Haggai. I love this. It's a truth. Yeah, 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 you say, you know, we don't deal with holy objects. That's true, but we do not. Then said Haggai, if one who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered, it does become unclean. In their world, the physicality of the old covenant if I were, you know, for instance, carrying a dead body, a roadkill, say, roadkill of a pig, so you know it's unclean in Jewish terms, right? And so you had got out of the car, you got to get move the pig, and you you're going to become unclean by touching it. So you pop this dead pig in your apron because you're still wearing it from whatever reason. In their world, everything you bumped into became unclean. Because evil is catching. Okay? Evil is like what's current thought these days. Like Ebola. You get flipped out when you're around Ebola people. Hospitals are very concerned about infection. John will tell you about all the potential infection in a hospital. A lot of different things than Ebola, but people go to the hospital and get diseases you know, because there are so many diseased people because evil's catching. You know, they don't just say, you know, let's, this is a hospital, let's bring in a bunch of healthy people and have them just walk around the halls, breathing on things, coughing on the doorknobs. I'm healthy, 
You can have some of my health. Ever catch health from somebody? No, you catch a cold from somebody. It still works in your mind. You know, oh yeah, bad things I could catch, good things I can't catch. Now how does he apply this? He says, then Haggai said, verse 14, so it is with his people and with this nation before me. Ah, it's not just about meat in an apron. It's not about unclean things becoming unclean ceremonially. So with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. So how do we apply this in the New Covenant? You are the temple. This is what you're supposed to be building, first and foremost. Your life in the world, earning the money, paying the bills, doing the responsible thing, should always be the Christian that is that self doing those things, because the Christian is first of all in that person's life. 2 Corinthians 6.14 on the left-hand side, do not be mismated with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and iniquity? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Bolded, for we are the temple of the living God. Paul seems to believe this. He wrote it in 1 Corinthians, he wrote it in 2 Corinthians. And then he quotes Jeremiah 31. That's in brackets, it's not there in the text. I put it in there so you can look it up later. As God said, I will live in them and move among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Jeremiah 31 is the chapter prophesying the new covenant. And he is basing his claim that you are the temple based on Jeremiah and saying, I will live in them. Out of Jeremiah 31. So it's a new covenant idea that you are the temple. And in the same way, in the same way, we can't leave sin undealt with. You don't want... But Ezra's temple, which lasted until the, almost the time of Christ, uh, this trailer court uh, uh, bothered the king of the Jews, Herod the Great. And Herod the Great, who was not a Jew, wanted to do something about it. And he offered the Jews, okay, I'm going to build you a nice new temple. I have to tear this one down because it's got to go on the same spot. And the Jews, because he wasn't Jewish, they were going, oh, uh, we don't trust you, you're a bad man. And he said, okay, what can I do? First, he gathered all the supplies together. So there they were, all the supplies for the new temple right there. Money's been spent. Then, when they took down the other temple, they kept the altar functioning. So the ceremonies of the temple never ceased. Just the temple ceased. Then, he didn't contract some firm out of Chicago. He trained all the priests to be stonemasons, so only holy hands would touch the holy things of the temple. This is the idea. 
the temple you're building, you gotta, you gotta clean up. It says that in the end of the Corinthians passage. Therefore, come out from them and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch nothing unclean. And it's not like Mad Magazine is the unclean thing or a glass of beer is the unclean thing. It's not the things anymore. This is the new covenant. What do you bring in? Do you leave room for sin? This is the kind of temple you could build this kind of ministry. You could start getting people all excited about giving to All Souls Christian and, and building a new wing and then maybe have another steeple come up above the chancel so it'd really be dramatic. That'd be cool. But that's not what we're building. That's just a, if you want to do something nice architecturally. That's not, nothing to do with Christianity. What you are and what you have become has everything to do with Christianity. You are the thing that is being built and you are the thing that as you bring it in, consider this passage on being mismated with unbelievers. How much of your thought is unbelieving thought? How many of your you know, principles of life are what you learn from some godless source? Not because that doesn't make it wrong, but you better check because I bring in unclean things. When I look to who, I, who is teaching, do I consider their holiness? Do I consider whether or not they are believers? Because the unbelief, the uncleanness, all of that is catching. All of that taints. You're the end result. Because who you are, the temple, doesn't have a necessary catching quality to things you're around. You might create the greatest little holy temple. And I don't want you guys using that as a straight line for young ladies. Baby, you are a temple. And something about worship or something like that. Now you don't want to be doing that. But each one of you is. Each one of you is going to stand before the living God someday presenting that foundation of Jesus Christ and the temple built on it. What's it going to look like? Wood, hay, and stubble? Gold, precious stones? What are you, you going to do? What are you going to have? You're the end result. Because I can't have any necessary accidental transfer of the good genes, good germs that I might have developed. I can point to it. I can teach about it. But you're the result. Each person has to give themselves over to the grace of God. Each person has to make Christ first. I don't get to make Christ first for my kids. My kids have got to make Christ first. So it is with his people and with this nation before me, says the Lord, and so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Pray now, consider what will come to pass from this day onward. Behold, a stone was placed upon a stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to heap of twenty measures, they were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, they were but twenty. I smote you and all the products of your toil with blight and mildew and hail, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. It wasn't good enough that they committed themselves to building the temple. 
first prophecy, got that carried. Okay, we'll put the temple on the agenda. He said, okay, so you put a stone on top of another stone in the place of the temple. Great, good for you. Why is things still not going well? Why is your life not great? Because you kept Rome for evil. The things that were unclean in your life, you left unclean in your life. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Do the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree still yield nothing? From this day on, I will bless you. How do you think of that? You're a Christian in whom the foundation of Jesus Christ was laid, not the foundation of the threshing floor of Oruna, the Jebusite, on the north side of Jerusalem. Not that foundation. That's what they were looking at, but you're looking at a different foundation. How have you fared in Christ in life? Do you feel that the hand of God is smiling on you in what you have done? Not just what you have done. We're not a health and wealth sort of group of people. We don't say, oh, if you're holy, you'll get a big bank account. No. You will be at peace with whatever your bank account. God will bless you. We can build a physical image faster and grander. We can, we can, we can set our sights to make this a happening place. You're going to have to think about new paint colors for the outside of the church. It's going to have to be painted. I know there's going to be the conservatives here. We're going for white. A bunch of Pharisees. Traditionalists. You know, I was thinking of some subtle changes. Church split. And you can get quite a ways on those physical ministries with a lot of people in sin. In fact, just about everybody in sin. Matter of fact, that's what makes those things just go, is all the sin that people just hate each other and they've got control over the chancel. I never thought she would pick those kind of flowers. You've got a different temple. It's sitting right on top of your, your decision. Not, it's not our decision. We are a temple together. That's aspects of that as a body of believers. We express that, you might say, we're living stones in the temple. But you are also the temple of God. Yourself. We want to be the kind of church that people have seized this thing of, I'm going to put his kingdom first, and his kingdom first is me. How I live fruit of the spirit godliness, evangelism whatever the, the things that God wants to have done are they being done in you have you proved at Romans 12 passage prove what is the will of God be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may prove what is the will of God when you put the kingdom of God first for you you realize that that question comes up just like it would if you put your financial future as first in your life, what do I do with my investments at Merrill Lynch? That what do I do about where I keep my money? What do I do about my 401k? What do I do about my, any of my investments? What do I do? Well, if you put the kingdom of God first, the first question is, how do I know what I'm supposed to do? What is the will of God? What is good? What is acceptable? What is perfect? 
God promises here in Haggai at the end. You know, from this day forward, if you realize this, from this day, from this day on, I will bless you. And right at the end of the Luke account of that portion on worry, that portion on giving it all over to God, seeking the kingdom first, it says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is not something with a bunch of sweat equity. This is a matter of primacy. Where is my heart? What is first? The grace of God is going to give you much. It is his, that's the wonderful thing about Christianity. It's not all sweat piety. You just have to give yourself over to the primacy of the Lord. It's his pleasure to give you the kingdom. Is that the kingdom you're concerned with first? Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful. We'd ask that you would bless our time this afternoon, enjoying the fellowship and food. Thank you for being our kingdom and for making it in each one of us. Help us hear Haggai's promises and our Lord's promises and the apostles' promises about where the temple that is being built is being built. Thank you again for this morning. In your son's name, amen.